Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. The City of Bloomington is partnering with a local environmental coalition in its efforts to control invasive plants at city parks and trails. The Bloomington Board of Park Commissioners approved a partnership agreement with Monroe County Identify and Reduce Invasive Species last Tuesday. City landscaper Joanne Sparks told the Park Board the partnership went live on Saturday, March 2nd at Griffey Lake. Sparks said last weekend's event is the first of several invasive plant awareness days. But we um, would like to officially um, begin our partnership um, this coming Saturday at Griffey. We want to um, join with them to do um, partly um, an invasive um, plant um, awareness and education day and a, sort of a work day to teach people how to control invasives on their properties and come help us. So, And it's also a, sort of an outreach to the public to um, perhaps participate in our Adopt an Acre program at the property nearest them. We're um, excited to launch our first Saturdays Invasive Plant Awareness Days. They'll be um, March through November, the first Saturday of each month from 1 to 4, and we're going to um, hit different properties to try to draw in different neighborhoods. Sparks also described the city's invasive removal and reforestation efforts along the Bloomington Rail Trail. Sparks said the project began last spring on the section from the Country Club Road Trailhead to Gordon Pike. The city hired ecological restoration firm Ecologic to mow down seven miles worth of bush honeysuckle and treat a large swath of purple winter creeper. We're really pleased with the results. Um, we seeded um, native um, wildflowers and grasses um, last um, December. We, we put down native seed and we um, are ordering um, several thousand tree seedlings to work on getting reforestation going along that trail corridor where, because it is so um, um, disturbed, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, we're, we're going um, with the um, planted heavy and hope that, you know, one out of 25 will make it just because the soil is so terrible and it's rail corridor. The Park Board renewed the city's contract with Ecologic for the next leg of the project from Gordon Pike to that road. In other business, Parks Director Paula McDivitt presented a proposal for a new tree abatement process. The proposed seven-step process gives the city the right to remove or prune any hazardous private tree located in the right-of-way. 
The city um, can determine if there is a public hazard or a threat to health, safety, life, or property because of a tree, and if that happens, the following steps will um, occur. The urban forestry certified tree assessors, if we have two on staff, uh, will make the determination if, of the tree's condition. And if they determine that this tree is in violation of that, they will, step two, send a notice of violation um, via certified mail to the homeowner. And along with that information will be um, information for the homeowner if they want to appeal that notice. The homeowner has 15 working days to um, remove or prune the tree and um, contact us and let us know of their plans to do so. That's the best case scenario. McDivitt said if the homeowner does not respond within 15 days, the city will send a second notice by certified mail along with information on how to appeal. Under the new code, the park commissioners will hear any appeals or, if needed, approve the abatement. After the tree is removed or pruned, um, the city uh, controller's office will send the homeowner by certified mail uh, an invoice for the cost of that, um, either pruning or removal. And the homeowner has 10 days um, to pay that. If the homeowner fails to pay that statement, then Parks will file a special assessment with the Monroe County Auditors to place a lien on the property. McDivitt said the proposed tree abatement process is based on a similar process used by the city's Department of Housing and Neighborhood Development. Park Commissioner Kathleen Mills asked McDivitt for more details about the process. Do you anticipate this will be on a sort of case-by-case -case basis like somebody's out trimming in a park and a home, you know, a private property abuts that and they notice a problem, or are you going to go around with a system of evaluation? Uh, or We will not be going around with a system of evaluation okay. if we are out and observe, um, or sometimes um, through you reports we get a notice of that, um, but this is very much private tree that presents a risk to the city, and it's not a private tree on private property that presents a risk to the, the neighbor, for example. We, right. are, we are strictly looking at this with city lenses. The proposed tree abatement process was only under review in the February 26th meeting. Park commissioners will vote on the proposal at their March 26th meeting. Security guards continue to turn away the public at the city's decommissioned Griffey Lake Water Treatment Plant. The City of Bloomington Utilities implemented 24-hour security measures last year as it began mercury and asbestos cleanup at the plant. City Attorney Chris Wheeler says security guards turn away potential trespassers daily. On Monday, Wheeler proposed the Bloomington Utilities Service Board extend its security contract with Bruce Wild Security. Wheeler told the board the contract extension will be costly. But what this amendment's going to do is extend the life of the agreement out to the end of August of this year uh, and increase the overall cost of the agreement an additional $130,272, which brings it uh, to its to a new not to exceed total of $247,272 for this security to ensure that uh, folks who are curious about the condition of the Griffey plant 
uh, are not able to get in and undo all of the good work that VET and our staff are doing to try and get the contaminations cleaned up. The City of Bloomington Utilities completed mercury remediation at the Griffey Lake Water Treatment Plant in 2017. CBU detected new mercury contamination last year as it began asbestos removal. Inspections traced the new contamination to unauthorized activity at the plant. CBU then installed night lighting and security guards last July to prevent trespassers from doing further damage or from tracking the hazardous element off-site. According to the Centers for Disease Control, mercury exposure can cause neurological disturbances, memory problems, and skin rashes. High concentrations of mercury vapor can cause lung damage. Unless there's some organized crime wave that uses it, I, I can't imagine why on a daily basis people would want to visit it. I, mean, I it don't have an answer for you. I, c I can provide a lot of speculation, but I, I'll pass. <laughs> In a previous board meeting, Utilities Director Vic Kelson said the trespassers tend to be high school and college students who are simply curious. The Capital Facts reports that the Clean Energy Jobs Act introduced on February 27th would move Illinois to 100% renewable energy by 2050 and make the state a national leader in clean energy and climate action. The bill proposes to generate 45% of Illinois' electricity from renewable resources and none from fossil fuels by 2030. That rapid expansion of clean energy would place the state at the forefront of job growth, investments, customer savings, and health benefits from renewable energy. The bill would also grow the Illinois Solar for All program by as much as 500% expand cost-saving energy efficiency programs and assess the existing grid to find cost savings. Charging stations will be constructed for electric vehicles. The Clean Energy Jobs Act aims to take advantage of these opportunities while removing the equivalent of one million gasoline-powered vehicles off the road. More details are available on the bill website, futureenergyjobsact.com. Around the globe, a worker dies from exposure to toxic substances in the workplace every 15 seconds. That's the conclusion of a recent United Nations report published by the United Nations Special Report on Toxins. The largest contributor to these deaths is cancer at about 70%. The report asserts that almost all workplace cancers are preventable. The report further states that over 200 known factors, including toxic chemicals and radiation, are known or probable human carcinogens and are present on the job. Cancer isn't the only factor. Debilitating and fatal lung diseases, neurological disabilities, and reproductive problems such as infertility and the inability to carry a pregnancy to term are some of the many other impacts of workplace exposure to toxic substances. Many of the workers are women of childbearing age. The report says that there are almost always alternatives to prevent or minimize exposure if countries choose to require industry to adopt them. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli. 
Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. And now, for the first of two segments, we bring you today, in place of our regular eco-report feature, from WFHB's Brown County Hour, we share with you Jim Eagleman's Nature News. Brown County Hour airs on the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. I'm always amazed at the New Year's arrival of the spring wildflowers. They regularly appear right on schedule after the first few warm days of spring. Despite a prolonged chill or even snow squalls, they persist and continue their flowering. And it's all part of the plan they continue growing. A plant's destiny is to produce more of its own kind through the production and germination of seeds. Flowering in general is a marvelous thing to observe when you consider ideal growing conditions may not happen. There have been springs we've all experienced here in Brown County with chilled days all through April, then a quick turn to almost hot days. No intermediate time of slow warming the soil. It seems to go from snow melt to 80 plus degrees. Conversely, very warm days produce an explosion of blooms, only to be squelched by late April snow. These unpredictable conditions surely throw gardeners and flower growers a curve trying to predict and outsmart the weatherman. Wildflowers grow where they do, said a botany professor, though this didn't quite satisfy my limited appreciation. I assumed he meant that seeds fall in good and bad soil conditions. Those places with adequate moisture and warmth from the sun allow the seed to grow quickly from last year's production. Many wildflower seeds lay dormant for an entire year and require a freezing period to germinate. I once learned this by trying to germinate a plant and read that I was to put seeds in several different cold conditions. One in a moist paper towel and on a winter windowsill, some in the freezer, some uncovered in the fridge, and some placed in a pot covered with loose soil in the garage. This imitated the varied natural conditions and I got some to produce little roots that I could plant. Other wildflowers begin growth from an underground rootstock. It's a storage organ called a tuber or corm, and it supplies the necessary nutrients to start the plant. Have you ever tried transplanting wildflowers from a natural area to your home garden? It's no easy task. What appears to be a hardy clump of wildflowers growing in the forest does not do well in a different environment, despite the care and maintenance. It's a paradox. Here's a plant that exists in its natural habitat through droughts, floods, and storms. But digging, bringing a bit of nature to your home landscaping scheme, will not duplicate the conditions it must need, and it often results in disappointment. The old adage is true. Flowers are best leaving them where they grow. Leave them be for others to see. Ephemeral is a term often used with wildflowers. Their short-lived life requires the seeds grow into a mature plant quickly. And in the forested areas where we see spring beauties and hepatica, trilliums and toothworts, often this is far before the leaf canopy overhead becomes established. Sun-flecked areas warm up and the seeds do well here. Fallen leaf cover from last year helps the soil retain the needed moisture. Watch for beads and moths to visit these early ephemerals and the predator squirrels, chipmunks, and birds that hunt them as a food source. This is often overlooked and an unassuming part of the plant world and has led scientists to develop a specific discipline 
Plant ecology is the study of plants and their relation to the environment. This study has allowed more appreciation for how birds, animals, and mostly insects utilize plants. And the wildflowers at our feet, while pretty to look at, and out come the cell phones to capture pictures of them, are an important food source of nectar and pollen that we don't often realize. Less common or showy wildflowers are a challenge to find for many wildflower enthusiasts and photographers. Spring larkspur, wood betony, wild ginger, the yellow lady slipper orchid, the putty root orchid, and the early and adventive harbinger of spring or salt and pepper are always on the lists. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Eagleman reporting for another segment of Nature News, WFHB-FM Radio, the Brown County Hour. Eco-Report producer Jan Walker recently discovered Tending the Garden, a WFHB series originally broadcast in the 90s. Jan enjoyed it so much, she decided to bring it back. Now we present to you a second episode of Tending the Garden from the Archives. has typically been a very fertile, biodiverse land. Uh, It got its name Indiana from the fact that there were so many Native Americans at the time considering this their home. It was a, a very biologically diverse land of many different kinds of plants and animals that were here. The European settlers found it uh, to be Uh, also a very good place to settle down in and what really attracted these populations was the fact that it was so biodiverse in its nature the nature of the land had so many different kinds of animals and plants that it was easy to find things to to work with to make a living out of to exist on this land as settlers started arriving to central Indiana in the late um, after 1800s, they encountered a very forested region dominated by oak and hickory forest with some beech and maple forest in the valleys. The terrain proved uh, very inhospitable to the early settlers who cleared it with very, uh, very much speed and efficiency. Uh, they were very industrious people and literally... Um, by the time the depression came along in the early 1800s we had uh, virtually very few forests left all of the forests that we have standing now virtually all the forests are what's called second um, stand or second generation forests and they've come along uh, as a regrowth from this time period because as the settlers came across in those early 1800s a lot of it was gone uh, along with that we we lost uh, some of our wildlife uh, during the early 1800s, we had seen the uh, last of the deer and the bear and the passenger pigeon, raccoon, squirrel, and turkey. They were really gone by 1810. There was a reintroduction. Uh, the deer obviously have come back. The passenger pigeon has really never come back and has been extinct since 1914. 
the bear disappeared before 1850, and the wild turkey uh, and deer were absent by the mid to late 1890s due to overhunting and habitat loss. Um, the two species were reintroduced in the mid-1900s. Elk became extinct in Indiana by 1830. We used to have cougar, but they were gone by 1836, and the wolf that were in Indiana were gone by 1907. The beaver probably vanished from the state in the early 1830s, but was reintroduced by the, by the 1900s again. Um, I think it's an interesting concept to realize all of the different changes that the landscape has gone through and that how there was a point in history that people were attracted to this area by its biodiversity. We've gone through a stage where we've, we've really killed off a lot of that and now we're in a stage of regeneration where we're introducing eagles, we're reintroducing the otters. There's all kinds of things that we're trying to bring back that we have displaced um, by our own actions. I hope to see uh, Indiana remain on its way to healing the biodiversity within its region because I think it keeps us healthy as a whole. This is Rutabaga, hoeing on down the row. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Please give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And up next is In Nature. This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly, and today's In Nature segment is about the cerulean warbler. The cerulean warbler is a small songbird of the warbler family, only about 4.3 inches. Adult males have pale cerulean blue and white underparts with a black necklace around the breast and black streaks on the back and flanks. The population is dropping faster than any other warbler species in the United States. The population decline is 74% since 1966. The cerulean warbler winters in South America and migrates north in the summer. It breeds in forests with tall deciduous trees and open understory, such as wet bottom lands and dry slopes. They can be found in Indiana. The cerulean warbler feeds primarily on insects and nests in trees using bark fibers, grass stems, and hair bound together with spider webs. They lay one to five eggs that are grayish to greenish white with brown speckles. That's the cerulean warbler.
been listening to In Nature. This week, coming up in our listening area, there will be an Indiana Maple Syrup Weekend at the Hinkle Garden Farmstead Community Historic Site in Bloomington on Saturday, March 9th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Tour the sugaring operations and learn about the process of making maple syrup. Take some time to shop for a few maple syrup items before you leave. The final Mysterious Hills winter hike at Brown County State Park will take you on the 10 o'clock line Nature Preserve hike on Saturday, March 9th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center to carpool to the trailhead where you will hike along a fire trail for about one mile. The trail will meet up with Horse Trail B where you will hike around the Nature Preserve. This hike is approximately 2.5 miles long and will last about two hours. There is rugged terrain, so be sure to dress for the weather and wear sturdy boots. You can also take a hidden caves hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, March 9th from 1 to 1.30 p.m. Meet the naturalist at the Pioneer Village parking lot to take a rugged hike through the parts, through parts of the park that most people have never seen to see a hidden cave. The Winter Exploration Hike Series at Monroe Lake will continue with an exploration of the Saddle Creek area on Wednesday, March 13th from 10 a.m. to noon. This is an off-trail hike with no set path. Be prepared for rugged terrain and the lack of formal toilet facilities. Please pre-register by March 10th to jvance at dnr.in.gov. Head north for a woodcock watch at Shades State Park south of Crawfordsville on Saturday, March 16th from 7 to 8 p.m. Known as timber doodling, male American woodcocks put on a unique and spectacular mating display. Watch these secretive birds show off their skills. Meet at the Pine Shelter located just inside the park entrance. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003, and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Sarah Vaughn. The Brown County Hours Nature News segment was produced by Jim Eagleman. TTG was produced by Cheryl Coverdale. It was edited by Chris Lightning and Jan Walker. I wrote and produced this week's In Nature, and Jan Walker edited the segment. My co-anchor, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar. Kirsten Payton engineered today's show. The script editor was Rebecca Miller. Jan Walker is our producer, and the executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, 
feature audio in nature and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And this is Todd Wicks. And this was Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.